1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT and This is Hardwood Handicappers, Veasan's premier NBA betting podcast. Here's your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. What's up, folks? Welcome in. Hardwood Handicappers, another episode we got a lot to get to here. And uh, this will be a little bit quicker. Our late week episodes tend to go a little bit longer. And we're efforting a, uh, a special guest for Thursday's edition of Hardwood Handicappers. But um, let's not waste any time. We got a lot to get to in this episode. Some breaking news focuses around the Phoenix Suns. So let's start every episode as we always do. Hardwood Headlines. All right, but the uh, headline here is... Um, It's all Phoenix Suns related. Cam Johnson, forward for the Phoenix Suns, out one to two months after undergoing meniscus surgery. Uh, Johnson has been in the midst of a really strong season. Career high 13 points, uh, 3.4 rebounds. 13 and 13 would be good. Uh, But 13 point, wow, can't talk. 3.4 rebounds, 44.6% from the floor, 43.1% from three-point range. Um, And this is why I like a lot of this data and numbers because it gives you an idea of how effective guys are outside of just scoring Uh, efficiency differential a stat tracked by cleaning the glass he improves the sun's net rating by 17.6 points per 100 possessions when he's out there their offensive rating improves by 14.6 points per 100 possessions when he's on the floor their defense gives up 3.1 points fewer per 100 possessions with him on the floor so johnson's been great and he has really helped Um, bridge this gap that has been there at forward for them. Mainly, we'll call it power forward, although size-wise and role-wise, they are a little bit different. But uh, um, physically, Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges and what they do at forward hasn't been crazy different. Um, But Cam Johnson has been bridging the gap for them at the forward spot ever since he took that over because of Jay Crowder's absence and what has been going on with Jay Crowder uh, in terms of him not wanting to be a part of this team and him being home. So this is a really big blow for the Phoenix Suns, and it makes them very thin at the forward position, obviously, considering that we'll call it their top two forwards aren't available or two of their top three forwards, because obviously Mikhail Bridges is a forward as well. Um, but this leaves you pretty thin. Tory Craig is likely going to be at the top of the rotation now for that power forward role that they have. Dario Saric. We'll get some run as well. Monty Williams uh, suggested some other guys. Right, Landry Shaman, Josh Kogi would probably feel more of like a small forward type role, and you bump Mikhail Bridges over to that power forward more type of role. But regardless, uh, Torrey uh, Tori Craig, Darius Saric, Landry Shaman, Josh Kogi, uh, more minutes for these guys when they're out there on the floor. But it, you know, it is. I would say, like again, as we move forward, it's one to two months, so it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, much like with James Harden and when Kelly and I talked about it, you know that he is going to come back at some point, and that's a good thing. Um, but over the next one to two months, it'll be interesting to see how they respond to this as a team that is, from a forward perspective, outside of DeAndre Ayton, somewhat of a small team and now gets even smaller with this loss here, unless they're going to go like dual bigs with Saric out there. At power forward, here's the thing. Sarge at power forward has not really been great. Um, It's a small sample size, so it's not going to be this extreme. But a negative 28.7 net rating with Dario Sarge at power forward this season the Suns have. Uh, The biggest issue is offense. 80.4 points per 100 possessions on offense with Sarge at power forward and Craig's been fine, and he's been solid, plus 1.5 net rating, 110.7 points per 100 possessions offensively, you know, a little below average, at least in terms of what we have seen up to this point this season, league-wide average offensive rating in non-garbage time minutes floating around 112 points uh, per 100 possessions, so this is, I think it's a big loss, um, obviously, and it affects a team's shooting as well, because Cam Johnson, of course, has been a very good shooter, and the Suns Uh, Not that they're a poor shooting team by any stretch, um, but I would say that they are not rife with shooters in terms of their depth and ability. And right now they're right at league average at 34.6% in terms of shooting. um, Oh, excuse me, I apologize. That is frequency. In terms of actual shooting percentage, the Phoenix Suns are 14th at 36.7%. I was looking at the wrong column there. So they're an average team in terms of their shooting, and that might dip a little bit there with Cam Johnson sidelined. But it's not just Johnson's unavail- like uh, unavailability that is going to be uh, an issue for them, right? It's the fact that the other night, and this ties into another headline here, that Chris Paul left the loss to Philadelphia with a sore heel. He's considered day to day. I thought this quote from Paul was kind of troubling uh, when you actually look at it, and I actually haven't heard the context because you know inflection and whatnot actually gives you a little bit more detail into it. But uh, from Paul after the game, quote: "Trust me, if I could have played, I would have." So it did seem like the heel was bothering him. Monty Williams did note that nothing was really going on there. It just seemed to happen right there when he was on the floor. And in the game, Phoenix only put up an offense rating of 95.6. And it's only one game. And you never want to freak out after one. But you kind of wonder, okay, what does this mean for the Phoenix Suns from a betting perspective? And I don't necessarily think that this is going to be a team that you're going to run to the window to bet against. Uh, And obviously the market is going to account for this in some form or fashion when it comes to the Phoenix Suns. Uh, But I do wonder from a totals perspective, if you might start to look at this team um, under the total, depending on where these totals are at and obviously adjusting for their opponent that they are facing. Um, But for example, if you look at some of the numbers, uh, when you have this team with Chris Paul and Cam Johnson off the court, and we should know too that Chris Paul, from a scoring standpoint, Really hasn't been great. Only nine points per game. Uh, but he's been facilitating pretty well. 9.4 assists per game. But with both Johnson and Paul off the floor. Again, a below average, but right around there. 111.9 points per 100 possessions on offense. Their half-court offense is bad. 87.2 per 100 plays. So it's just, again, it's, it's, it's a smaller sample size. But it does seem that perhaps this team's offensive rating might take a small dip when it comes to playing without both Johnson and Paul going forward, if Paul misses an extended amount of time. And we'll see if that's going to be the case. Obviously, on Tuesday, they get the day off because of the Election Day thing that the NBA is doing. So Paul might just might be, be back uh, on the floor when they take the floor again. Um, but I do think it's something to monitor here, obviously, with Chris Paul compounded with Cameron Johnson and what's going to happen here with this team's offense. Because it looked pretty bad. They'll take the floor again on Wednesday against the Minnesota Timberwolves. That'll be a road game there. So it's going to be something, as we look forward, if Chris Paul is going to miss time, if this is going to be a big blow for Phoenix um, in their offense and the way that these totals have been coming in for them. And, and look, from a totals perspective as well, and where we've been at with Phoenix, uh, it's not been dominant one way or the other. They have trended to be an under team three six one against the spread, 3-6-1, I should say, um I said against the spread, 3-6-1, uh, and one, uh, that would be 6-under, 3-over. So I always hate when I kind of do that. You know, I never know how to say it. So we'll go 6-3-1 and one to the under. There we go. That'll be a little bit easier to uh, perceive. Or 66% of their games have gone under the total. It's a 10-game sample size. Um, and we're talking about some totals that have already been pretty low to begin with. Uh, but going into that game with Philadelphia, or after coming out of it, I should say, Four consecutive games now under the total for Phoenix. And you've really seen that their offense has taken a small dip. Uh, the last two games, for example, they have scored just a uh, 102 in 88 games, or excuse me, 88 points, 106 in the loss to Portland. That is somewhat troubling against a Portland team that doesn't project to be a great, um, a great defensive team. But we'll see if uh, something kind of breaks through here but we're talking about average closing totals for this team's last three games, 214.5, 215.5, 217.5. So we've seen this team's um, totals already start to peak down. So we'll see if maybe this gets even lower, uh, but they would project to potentially be an under team without Johnson and Paul out there on the floor. So this is all dependent on whether or not Paul's going to be out there. And even if Paul isn't out there, keeping track of this team uh, from a total standpoint and what it means for them, is going to be pretty interesting as they have started to go a little bit under in terms of um, their scoring. And some of it has to do with their pace as well. They're the third slowest team in the NBA. They're averaging about 97, we'll call it 97.2 possessions per game. Only teams that are slower than them, Philly and Dallas, and by the way, that game against Philly, sailed underneath the total. So... I'm going to keep track of Phoenix in some of these games. Uh, When they played Minnesota, who is their opponent coming out of this little hiatus, uh, that total was 227, way higher than the last three games than what we have seen. So if that thing is going to open up relatively high, again, giving Paul status, we'll see if that's going to be worth an underplay, where the market reacts to as well. Because this Minnesota team, uh, for everything that has gone poorly for them up to this point, the one thing that has been consistent is, has been their defense. Seventh in the NBA right now, 110.1 points per 100 possessions allowed in non-garbage time minutes. Uh, It's their offense that's been pretty poor, and uh, net rating-wise, just outscoring opponents by 0.6 points per 100 possessions. So outside of that, um, it is a relatively slow news time in the association. Um, You know, there's little bits and um, tidbits here and there, but Johnson was really the big part of what's going on, and You know, there's little things that we can build on, too, from last uh, past episodes. But I wanted to send this episode talking a little bit about one of the uh, markets in terms of the awards. So we'll take our uh, quick break early on here. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at the rookies yet again here as there has been a massive update in the rookie of the year market. And I think it is crazy that this guy is the price that he is. All right back here on Hardwood Handicappers. Uh, we've got a couple of benchmarks that we usually do, uh, so let's get into one of them as we take a look at the rookies out there and what they have done up to this point. Rookie Report. So the headline coming out of our rookie report here <laughs> is going to be Paolo Bencaro. And again, Paolo Bencaro has been phenomenal. He has shown no signs of really slowing down in terms of his scoring. Uh, he has had, up to this point now, out of all the games that he has played, um... Two games in which he has scored underneath the total of 20 points. That was a game right at the start of the month of November in which he scored 15 points. And then right at the end of October in which he scored 18 points. That was against the Thunder and the Mavericks, respectively. Uh, But this guy has been great. And in his last three games, uh, we're talking about 22 points against the Warriors in that comeback victory uh, in the overtime loss to the Sacramento Kings, which they blew. I think it was a 20-point lead in the third quarter. He scored 33 points and then dropped 30 against the Houston Rockets. And I would say that you could kind of look at this schedule so far for Orlando and, you know what, maybe pick it apart and say, yeah, you know, defensively he hasn't faced the best competition. Detroit, Atlanta, yes, Boston. Boston has not been a very good defensive team so far this year. Um, Charlotte, Dallas is a solid defensive team. Not a, a dominant one, but a solid one, we'll say. But then uh, then you look, right, Golden State has been at the bottom of the heap in terms of defensive efficiency, Sacramento, Houston. So not to take away anything from him, but this run has been um, kind of buoyed or sprung along here, I would think, uh, by the opponents that he's faced. And I think it's a really good positive that he's taking advantage of really poor defensive teams. But the headline is, not only that Bancaro's been playing well, DraftKings has shifted him to a minus 900 favorite to win Rookie of the Year. Now, it's always important to realize um, that future odds like this, MVP... Uh, championship odds to a certain degree as well awards though are very high on this a lot of this has to do with liability and you know I'll have to ask Johnny Avello throughout the week uh, and by the time we come on on Thursday I'll have an answer but in terms of liability how it's building up for Bancaro and why he is this high but it's not like DraftKings the only one moving on Bancaro but minus 900 is absolutely insane that is an implied probability of 90 percent 90 percent so we're saying that Palo Benquero has a 90% chance to win this award on November 8th or three weeks into the season. That is wild. So what that means is, I think, and I think if you talk to anybody uh, in the sports betting community, that would mean that we're opening this up for, I think, quite a bit of value in this market when you look around it. it I would say this, if you really dive into the rookie class and if you look at where the awards are at uh, or where the contenders are at in terms of their viability of winning this award. Um, I think that the pool is a lot smaller than initially thought. Now, again, we're only in November, so this could expand because we have plenty of time. But to give you the, the rundown, again, this is only via DraftKings, so we shop around and look around, but uh, this gives you a sense of what one market is. Palo Bancaro, $9 favorite, minus $900. Benedict Matherman of Indiana at 750 Keegan Murray, Sacramento, 22 to 1. Jaden Ivey, 30 to 1. Jabari Smith Jr., 100 to 1. So the fifth choice on the board, we're already in triple digits. And Jabari Smith Jr., He's 100 to 1. Then you get the Shaden Sharp, who's 150 to 1. Walker Kessler, 250 to 1. And then everybody else, 300 to 1 or lower. So this does seem, at least the way this market is shaping up, this is right now, DraftKings would tell you, a two horse race. And even then, the second horse in Benedict Matherin is well behind Paolo Banquero, the guy that's in the lead. So I think initially, so there's two guys that you're, I think, going to look at here. And it's not, again, going crazy far down the board. But I think the first guy that we're staring at right now is the guy that's right in our face. It is Benedict Mathurin because he has been really, really good. 23, or excuse me, 19.4 points per game, 3.7 rebounds per game, 2.4 assists per game. He has shot 44.4% from the four and 40.3% from three. He's also contributing to a Pacers team that is actually a sneaky good on offense. We should note Indiana right now, as of today, eighth in the NBA in offensive efficiency, 115.8 points per 100 possessions. On that end of the floor matherin is a very very big part of that and he has come off of the bench in every single one of his games but that doesn't matter he has been contributing at a really high rate averaging nearly 20 points per game and he is a key cog in a team that is top 10 in terms of offensive efficiency that should matter right because while paulo banquero is doing what he's doing orlando still is 21st in the nba in offensive rating And uh, I think that should factor in, although this isn't an individual award, but still, I think that would factor in to when you assess uh, voting for this award. That's just me. Um, So we start with Matherin. And if you look at some of his on-court, off-court numbers, he is a positive contributor to his team overall. Um, In terms of efficiency differential for Benedict Matherin, he improves the Indiana Pacers net rating by 1.4 points per 100 possessions. He is a positive on defense. He is a positive on offense. He has been great on all ends of the floor. And when he's out there, specifically on offense, their turnover rate drops Indiana's by 2.2%. His offensive rebounding rate or the team's offensive rebounding rate improves by 4% per 100 possessions. The free throw rate, they average 4.5 more made free throws per 100 possessions with him out there. They force more turnovers defensively. He's been a really solid contributor um, on both ends. He deserves to be credited for what he's been doing. But I would say that the numbers suggest that there's not that big of a gap between him and Bankero. I mean, think about what we're looking at right now. So at minus 900, again, that is an implied probability of 90%. We're talking about Benedict Matherin, who at this point right now is, we'll call it, four points less per game on very similar shooting splits. And by the way, shooting the ball way better than Paolo Bancaro is and positively contributing to a team that is top 10 in terms of offensive efficiency on that end of the floor. I would not say that just between these two, that Palo Bancaro has a 90% chance to win this award and Benedict Matherin only has a 11% chance to win this award because that's what plus 750 would tell you for Benedict Matherin. But here's the thing, all right, because we're going to get to one more candidate that I think has a realistic shot at this. My first shot would be at Benedict Matherin. However, I would sit back for a moment and see what the market does because clearly the way that this market has been heading, there is not going to be a break moment on Bancaro's odds in terms of the way they continue to rise. So you could, maybe within the next week, given how quick the, this market is moving in favor of Paolo Bancarro, maybe get double digits again on Benedict Matherin at about 10 to 1, and that would be a time to jump in. But it's one I think you should monitor on a day-to-day basis now at this point when it comes to Rookie of the Year. I, I think we're looking around and we're waiting for that chance to strike at about double-digit odds when it comes to Benedict Matherin. And that is going to be the time uh, to jump in. Because at this point, minus 900 is a ridiculous price. At this point of the season, and I want to stress that, it's not because, hey, we dislike well, Palo Bancaro is overrated. No, that's not the case. The case is just realistically, when you're looking at it, to say right now, and by the way, I should note, Ben MGM has Bennett Mathren at 9-1, to so we're getting really close. But to say at this point of the season, any guy has a 90% or 90% chance to win an award like this, especially rookies who can be very inconsistent, I would say that that is absolutely wild and that we should just be sitting back and waiting and seeing if we can get double digits or better because when that does happen, I think that's going to be a time to jump in on Benedict Mathurin. Now, having said that, there's one more candidate I wanted to talk about really quickly because, again, it does seem like this is an award market that is pretty tight in terms of the contenders. But it's very much worth mentioning that Jaden Ivey has come along really strong for the Detroit Pistons, and pretty solid stats. He's not near ben, uh, uh, yeah, or Ma, yeah, Benedict Mathurin or Paolo Bancaro, we'll say, for that matter, in terms of points per game. Uh, Ivey's only averaging 15 flat per game as of Tuesday. 19.4, again, for Mathurin, 23.5 for Bancaro. From a soaring standpoint, uh, doesn't really get it. Uh, from a rebound standpoint, averaging more rebounds than Mathurin, 4.9. We'll call it 5, of course, rounding up there and 3.6 assists on 43.8% shooting from the floor. So Ivy has just had a really solid rookie season and averaging essentially 15, 5, and 4. Any other year, it's a really solid year and might be among the contenders for rookie of the year. But Ben Carroll keeps rising. But I would keep an eye on Jaden Ivy because he has been a very big part of what the, Piston, the Pistons have been doing. Uh, right now, has improved the Pistons' uh, net differential is plus 1.9 for ID. Uh, So again, he improves their net rating by 1.9 points per 100 possessions. Uh, He has been a positive on offense. He's been pretty much nothing on defense, a a flat zero for him in terms of what he does to their net rating. When he joins the floor uh, defensively, one of the big things that sticks out about his numbers, uh, he's been getting to the free throw line, or he helps them get to the free throw line. When he gets on the floor, the Pistons average 6.6 more made three made free throws per 100 possessions. So he helps them out there. And when you look at his performances up to this point, hasn't had like like that dynamic, big scoring effort. Hasn't actually broken 20 points yet up to this point. But still, he's had some really good games in terms of like stats. You know, for example, when we saw him in that comeback against OKC on Monday night. In 34 minutes, 15 points, 11 rebounds, 6 assists on 6 of 15 shooting. Relatively solid night for him. That was following up an 18.6 rebound, 3 assist game against Cleveland. You go a little bit further down, he had 19-7 and seven in terms of points and rebounds in a loss against Milwaukee. And the shooting, I think, needs to improve a little bit. But you look across the board, he's got some of these performances. His third game against Mather and, and the Pacers. 17 points, 10 rebounds, 5 assists in 34 minutes. And that's the other part about this. We're talking minutes-wise. Uh, this kid is regularly getting over 30 minutes a game. The opportunity is going to be there. He's averaging 31.8. He's got a couple of games right now, actually, I should say a couple one. Uh, he has 140 point game, or 40 minute game at this point. Uh, he's had two games in which he 3 excuse me, in which he has um, gone 34 minutes. So again, he's a big part of the rotation. His numbers are adequate up to this point. He can improve on those in any stretch of play. And he is right there in terms of uh, being the third choice. I would say to win this award, and I would say at this point right now, uh, he has a better chance of winning this award than Keegan Murray, who is listed right now at the third cho- as the third choice at DraftKings at twenty-two to one. So if you're going for any of these mid-range shots, we'll call them, I do believe that Jaden Ivy is the guy to take that shot with at thirty to one. But this market's freaking great, man. In terms of keeping track of this and this is going to be one where i think i'm going to be uh, updating this every single day and when you get math run at that 10 to 1 mark uh, that's going to be one worth taking because again this point of the season i mean look around at any of these markets when you look at it like improved player most improved player favorite right now which we'll talk about that award in a second plus 275 go to the year will hardy seven to one six man of the year russell Westbrook. <laughs> DraftKings is the favorite, which is hilarious. Uh, But Jordan Poole, like 280. Russell Westbrook at plus 150. Uh, Defensive player of the year, Giannis Antetokounmpo at plus 330. But you get the idea here, right? MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo, plus 290. Uh, These are all plus prices on the favorites. And even then, you can make an argument at those very minuscule plus prices. There is value to be had elsewhere. But there is no award 10 games into the season where a guy should be a $9 favorite to win this thing. So rookie of the year again, it kind of drops off. Like Jabari Smith Jr. hasn't been playing that well. He's not hasn't been an efficient shooter. He has not really improved their net rating at all. Shaden Sharp, his minutes. I don't know what's going on with Sharp and his role. His minutes seem to uh, minutes seem to diminished a little bit there. He I think he played less than twenty against Miami the other night, so that's not really going to be a viable one. Um, so as we're looking around, it does seem that the candidate pool is shrinking for rookie of the year. Uh, but I would say. That Benedict Matherin and Jaden Ivey are the two guys you're looking at at this point right now. And as those odds kind of balloon on Benedict Matherin, he's going to be the shot that you should be looking to take. Now, speaking of the Indiana Pacers, Benedict Matherin's team, uh, I should note that I did make a bet in the futures market. And you can find Tyrese Halliburton at, let me double check. So he's since shifted. I got him at 12 to 1. Best price out there is 11 to 1. Still, obviously, very much worth taking. Um, Tyrese Halliburton. I have grabbed a piece of Halliburton at 12 to one to win, um, most improved player of the year. And I will say, cause I have had this conversation a couple of times now where people will throw at me like, ah, you know, I don't know how to vote. I, I don't know how to play that awards market. And I think a lot of that stems from how weird it was to see a guy like Ja Morant last year win the award. Um, and I would agree. I don't think John Morant really did deserve to win that award. That's no slight against John Morant. I just think it's ridiculous to say that a player of John Morant's status was improved to the point where he was the most improved player out there in the NBA last season. And yeah, he did get better. Even some of the other like you want some like real like better metrics on it. A jump in usage, thirty point four percent his second year to thirty six point one percent his third year, and still got more efficient. One hundred six point seven his points per shot attempt compared to one fifteen the year that he won his uh, most improved player of the year award. He shot thirty one percent from three his sophomore year in the NBA, improved that to about thirty four percent. His rim percentage went from sixty percent to sixty six percent. Like he got better. Don't get me wrong, he got better. Um, But when you saw some of the jumps that the other guys made and the fact that he was already pretty much a star in the league, it is a little weird to see a guy of his level win that award. So it has, I think, warped what we believe to be the most improved player of the year. For example, the fact that Zion Williamson was a very popular bet to win most improved player. And I think uh, as of about a week ago, BetMGM still reported that Zion was their biggest liability on the award. That's ridiculous when it comes to most improved player. um, I'm looking around at guys who are literally improved in their game. And at this point right now, over at DraftKings, uh, you have four players that are in the single digits to win this award right now. Tyrese Maxey at plus 275, Shea Gilgis-Alexander at four to one, Lowry Market at plus 650, and then the aforementioned Tyrese Halliburton at nine to one. So first, I just want to mention, because this isn't going to be about poking holes in the others, because the others have been absolutely great, and they deserve uh, recognition for it. I think a guy like Maxey, ties into what i was talking about last year there were a lot of people including myself who had big tickets on tyrese maxey to win most improved player of the year award and his numbers were incredible and i think that he deserved to win that award and when you look at him this year um his numbers are actually worse so far than they were last year so it would it's to me it would be mind-boggling if he somehow won the award this year if he posted worse numbers from a season ago, I think a lot of the traction behind Tyrese Maxey has to do with the, um, I think rightfully so, um, credit he got for maybe winning this award or competing for this award, I'll say, last season. So we'll see. I mean, he had a really good stretch. He had that three-game stretch against the Knicks and the two games against the Wizards in which he put up a ton of points. I think he averaged like 30.3 points per game in a uh, three-game stretch against those two teams. 4.7 assists, shot 46% from the floor, 39% from three. So, again... He's probably going to be in contention all season long as long as he keeps it up. It would be interesting to see, though, if statistically he posts worse stats across the board but still somehow wins it because last year he couldn't win it because he was a second-year player, but this year he can win it now because he's a third-year player. But even though his stats are worse, we'll still say that he's the most improved player of the year. You can tell why I get frustrated by some awards like this. But you can also tell why some people want to stay out of the fray when it comes to awards like this. But when it comes to a guy like Tyrese Halliburton, um, I think it's very much, at least at twelve to one, worth wading into the waters here. For, first, we'll start with he, this is his team. Like I, I don't think there's really any question about it. The Pacers view him as like their guy, their franchise cornerstone at this point. Why not? He's a really good player, and his usage rate, twenty eight point seven percent, that would be by far if it sticks a career high. Twenty three point seven was his previous career high, and that was in the twenty six games he played with Indiana last season. So he was right around 22% as a whole last season. So 28.7%. His points per shot attempt, he's even more efficient than he was in his time with Indiana last season. He had a 127.9 points per shot attempt in those 26 games with Indiana. He's at 131.5 through 10 games and a much higher usage rate. His assist rate up to 44.5%, again, would be a big time career high for him. When it comes to his assist rate, his shooting has been incredible. And he's always been a really good shooter. He's been a 40% three-point shooter uh, throughout his entire career. He is, again, uh, right now. Now, I don't think 48% from three is going to stick with him. uh, But still, rim percentage. He's finishing at the rim at a much higher rate. Now, the shots aren't really there. Uh, We'll see if that starts to pick up. But only 26 shots within four feet of the basket. But still, 19 of 26 in that area of the floor. He has been really great in that regard. His rebounding as well, has been much better than it has been in the past. 11.8% individual defensive rebounding rate for Tyrese Halliburton compared to 9.4% last year between the time in Sacramento and Indiana. Offensive rebounding rate over 3.5% in his time, both between Sacramento and Indiana, were just over 2.2% last season. So you can get where I'm going here. Uh, He is performing at an insanely high rate. The only big difference here is that he's not blocking shots, but who cares? He's a guard. That's not really uh, a big difference, but it is much lower than it was a season ago, 0.8% compared to 0.1% this season. But that's for me, that's the thing is he is going to have the ability here to stuff the stat sheets. The team is clearly his when it comes to uh, the run that he's going to get. Ball's always going to be in his hands. He is the Indiana Pacers' future right now. And traditionally, in terms of his statistics, I mean, he's checking all the boxes, man, through 10 games so far 21.7 points, 9.7 assists, five rebounds per game on 50% shooting and 47.7% from three.
0: <laughs>
1: How crazy is this? And yet, you're still sitting him at 12, 12 to 1 and 11 to 1 to win this award. I think this is a shot that is very, very much worth taking. And when you look at the board, too, there's going to be some really big competitors. I do think that a guy like Larry Markinen, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Markinen and the Jazz. The Jazz are sticking at this point right now on the top of the standings in the Western Conference. We're only 10 games in. You do wonder if when they start to lose games, because I'm going to assume that happens at some point. um, And when they start to lose games, what happens with the Jazz in terms of their uh, popularity, especially when it comes to the the voting, the voters, voters I should say, um, and if Larry Markkinen kind of sticks around there. I would assume that at one point Tyrese Halliburton is going to leapfrog him when it comes to the odds if he continues to play at this level, uh, but that is something that remains to be seen. And the same thing could be said for Shea Gilgis-Alexander, although Shea has been freaking awesome, and uh, I am a big, as we know, Thunder fan right now, um, even though they did blow that lead against the... Uh, Detroit Pistons the other night. But Shea's been great. And if you look at some of Shea Gilders-Alexander's numbers, uh, again, usage rate right in line with where he was. And this is what I wonder in terms of where we see some of these guys, like how much the the metrics that I use just compared to people looking at it and going, oh, he's scoring some points. All right, let's vote for him. Right? But I will say, Shea Gilders-Alexander is everything for the Oklahoma City Thunder offensively. 13.5 points per 100 possessions added to their offensive rating when he's out there on the floor. Uh, when he is on the court, they're talking, and this is the thing too when he's on the court, they're only averaging 111.5 points per 100 possessions. And that's an, that's a 13.5-point boost for 100 possessions with him out there. So they're well under a point per possession without him out there. You can see, too, in some of these games, you know, they've had a couple of big comebacks, right? They came back at the end of regulation against the Dallas Mavericks. They came back against the Orlando Magic. They blew that game against the Detroit Pistons. You see these lulls in scoring. It's because it's those possessions where Shea Gilgis-Alexander is not out there on the floor. And you do wonder, it's along the same lines with Larry Markin and the Jazz. Not that the Pacers are going to be some juggernaut that's going to be winning games. But these are two teams right now in Oklahoma City and Utah that before the season started, we considered them to be tank candidates. And they still very well could be by the time we get to the point where these teams start to tank. Do those guys start to see some ailments, as we'll call them? Um kind of hold them back from playing and thus cutting into their candidacy to win most improved. So again, this isn't like a big play on Tyrese Halliburton. I just grabbed a number on a guy who's playing really well and figured that that was going to start to cut. Uh, But we'll see if that is absolutely going to be the case. But I do feel pretty confident in playing that in terms of Tyrese Halliburton to win most improved player. But this is going to be exciting. Uh, hopefully, uh, two years ago, I hit the uh, what was it? Julius Randle win most improved, and I thought was in a good position with a couple of the guys that I had, including Tyrese Maxey and uh, Desmond Bain. Who Desmond Bain has been freaking awesome. So we'll see if that actually uh, starts to turn around too. Because for those who don't remember, last year John ja Morant was stunting, uh, stumping, stumping for um, Desmond Bain to win this award, and Bain has been awesome, especially in these fourth quarters. He's at twelve to one right now over at DraftKings. All right, we'll cut this episode uh, shorter. I just wanted to update those markets really quickly and update why I've been playing that. Uh, But look for the late night, uh, late week episode coming up on Thursday. Uh, I'll be actually out in New York, so I'm going to record it from New York. Uh, But regardless, I'm trying to try to see what's out there, dude, in terms of sports betting. And uh, I think I'll be out in Hoboken and then maybe explore New York too and uh, see what's going on out the East Coast. I haven't been out there for a long time since those uh, shows with Michael Lombardi. So anyway, like, rate, review, subscribe. Appreciate it as always. And we will talk to you late in the week.